About two weeks ago, Aliens, the sequel to the 1987 film Alien, was on TV. If it's on, I watch it, period. I would say I like it more than the original. It's less suspenseful, but that scene at the end when uh, Ripley is fighting the Queen while wearing the power lifter will always be one of the greatest finales in cinematic history, period. But right after the credits rolled, and I went to bed, my mind started wandering. Something like that even possible? This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of fandom and pop culture. I'm your host, not in a parasitic way, Fred Kennedy. And today, we're talking about aliens. What makes them so terrifying? And addressing the question, could a scenario like Alien happen here on Earth? But before we get too far, let's get some backstory on the Alien film franchise, and more specifically, its star player, the Xenomorph, or the lizard-looking alien with the penisy egghead. The original script for Alien was finished in 1979 by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusset, or Shusset. We'll say Shusset. And according to the 2003 documentary, The Beast Within, The Making of Alien, they struggled with it because they knew they wanted some space explorers landing on an alien planet and finding something dangerous. But beyond that, they were at a total loss. Eventually, Shusset had the idea that the danger they found would be a monster and it would forcibly impregnate one of the space explorers and the resulting offspring would burst from their chest, killing the former host. Something that's actually pretty common in nature and was actually inspired by the life cycles of wasps, which he discussed during the bonus features of the DVD release of Alien Evolution. But this becomes tricky. It's essentially sexual assault via alien. And neither Shusset nor O'Bannon liked the idea of doing this to one of the female explorers because it was way too predictable. It was, and sadly is, cliche for something awful to happen to a female character and then a dude comes along and saves the day. They wanted to do something different. So, they forcibly impregnated a male character. They knew that putting a dude in a situation like that would make every guy in the theater recoil in this uncomfortable terror, which was what they wanted. And once H.R. Geiger was involved, yes, H.R. Geiger, the famed artist, the one responsible for the design of the alien, among other visuals in the movie, it became the type of story that really turns gender roles on their head. They used every chance they had to do something subversive. Now, for those unfamiliar with the life cycle of the alien, a.k.a. the xenomorph, it starts with an egg, which houses a facehugger. Now, Johnny Christmas, who adapted the original William Gibson screenplay for Alien 3 into a comic for Dark Horse, is a guy who's knee-deep in the original source material. And he wouldn't want to be near one of those creatures. The facehugger always gets me. Uh, because uh, just the, sh- the sheer nature of what it is, like it, it lures you in. Uh, people sort of hover over it. 
it grabs, you know, the, the, uh, human's head and then it like inserts the egg into the throat while wrapping a, you know, this sort of leather, uh, tail around its neck that if you try to cut the tail, uh, acid squirts out killing the, uh, the host, the potential host. So it's just this unwinnable scenario. The egg itself is about 75 centimeters tall and the opening at its top from which the face hugger emerges initially looked like a human vagina. This wasn't an attempt at comedy or an inside joke or something. It was because the filmmakers wanted to create a symbolic offensive vagina. Not offensive in the way that we use it online, but offensive as in on the attack. I'm not making this up. It's all brought up in the documentary Dark Star, H.R. Geiger's World. The special effects team eventually had to revise the opening of the egg because producers were worried that censors would give them too harsh a rating. So they gave it two vaginas crisscrossed, like a cross, just to piss off the overly religious people. Make it look like the cross they love so much, H.R. Geiger famously stated. So, from the crisscrossed vaginas, the facehugger springs forth, ready to hug onto somebody's face and implant an embryo. In the first film, it happens to Kane, the ship's executive officer, played by John Hurt. He and some members of the ship Nostromo were exploring a wrecked alien ship when they stumbled across the clutch of xenomorph eggs. He watched the egg open, looks over, and wham! It dissolves its way through his space helmet, attaches to its face, and drives its embryonic implantation device down its throat. O'Bannon called it interspecial oral rape. And he wanted to make male viewers as uncomfortable as possible. And it worked. That scene, it, it's so suffocating and terrifying. When they find John Hurt with the face hugger gripping its skull, its tail wrapped around a near strangulation around his throat, you, the viewer, you feel violated. And that's the idea. An alien creature having its way with you and taking away your self-control. That's part of what makes the xenomorph so terrifying. It uses you as food and to procreate. I'm not the only one who finds this terrifying, though. Johnny Christmas completely agrees. Like, in, it, in its most uh, vulnerable state, it's engineered for guile. So it's just, so it tricks you when it doesn't have the strength to, and it kills you when it does. The fact that it tricks you is, is kind of what I find unsettling. And then uh, how quickly the attack happens when it's, when it's happening. Uh, so, yeah, the facehugger is probably my most terrifying creature of all of all movie creatures, all of them. Now, Johnny brought up a great point. The acidic blood. You can't cut the facehugger off. It will kill you when the acid spurts out. And that becomes even more dangerous when you're in outer space. So when the crew of the Nostromo gets John Hurt back on board as they try to save their friend and crewman, the first incision causes this massive spurt of incredibly strong acid. 
and it eats its way through several layers of the ship's bulkheads, nearly causing a decompression. They're locked in with it. Amid the vacuum of space, that facehugger is now everyone's problem. You're either the person with this thing latched to your face or the person who has to watch it stay latched to your friend's face. And there is nothing you can do about it. And even without the obvious symbolism that makes it all so uncomfortable, the plot itself is terrifying. Because when the facehugger detaches itself at its own leisure, when it shambles off to a corner to die, we're thinking we're done and that the healing process can begin. No, that's when the danger begins. John Hurt's character, now freshly detached, wakes up. He barely recalls what happened on the planet's surface when he was attacked. The crew rejoices. They're sitting around together, eating, having a great time, getting ready to move on. And then it happens. The embryo that the facehugger forced into John Hurt's body erupts in a bloody mass, ripping his torso apart. It's a vile serpent-like thing. No arms, no legs, just a merciless little death machine. Now, I want to note that the embryo has evolved from one movie to the next. In the later movies, when it eats its way free, it's got these little arms and legs. And this discrepancy is explained in the movies by noting that the embryo absorbs DNA from its host. And as every host is comprised with different DNA, it can cause the embryo to be slightly different. These differences become more extreme as it grows, which it does at an exceptionally fast rate. It reaches full size in mere hours. In the original movie, it's more than two meters in height within 24 hours. It stalks the ship, killing and eating the crew. It's about as terrifying as a scenario as one can imagine. There is nowhere the crew can go. They're trapped with it. And one by one, the crew dies. They try to kill it with flamethrowers, but it's too fast, too agile. This thing can climb walls. It's strong and seemingly always knows how to track the crew down. And that's just one. The second movie, aptly titled Aliens, an entire colony gets taken down by an infestation of xenomorphs. And it was in this movie that we learned a little bit more about its life cycle, namely where the eggs come from. A queen, obviously. But where does the queen come from? Johnny Christmas, once again. Okay, in the uh, William Gibson premise, if a drone is left alone and there's a multitude of potential hosts but no queen, the drone will then, through the wonders of biology, xenomorph biology, become a queen so that it can create eggs, so that the eggs can create facehuggers, which could then propagate the species by implanting themselves in potential hosts. The queen, which looks like an oversized version of her eventual offspring, comes complete with an extra pair of arms and an even larger penis-shaped head with a huge frill. It even displays a little bit of intelligence, making its nest amid the station's power generators, thus preventing the human defenders from simply placing charges and blowing it up, as doing so will destroy the entire colony. There are some fan theories that suggest the queen was only there because of the additional warmth that the generators would provide. But given the way that the xenomorph is almost always a step ahead of where its victims would least expect it or want it to be, 
I've got to think that there's at least a certain level of intelligence there. Aliens offers even more examples of this horrific intelligence. When humanity tries to save its colonists by sending in a group of highly trained colonial marines, they find out just how cunning and predatory the xenomorph really is. Their dropship lands, they find the colony, but no survivors. Because, see, the xenomorphs work like a termite nest, chewing up and repurposing things to their own need, and that made for some very cool visuals. The marines find a few remaining colonists... And they're still alive, only they're cocooned up in alien goo that's as strong as steel. With near-perfect timing, an embryo bursts forth. Now don't worry, the Marines open fire and, and they kill it. But wouldn't you know, the xenomorphs were waiting. This was a trap. Aliens start emerging from every nook and cranny. The Marines kill a few Xenomorphs, and the Xenomorphs kill a few more Marines, but take other Marines prisoners, you know, to use them as living incubators. And when you see them dragged away, screaming for help, and knowing what's about to happen, dude, it's rough. Only one Marine gets off that planet alive. Now remember, these are highly trained professional soldiers, and they got tuned. It's uncanny. How is that possible? How did these things get so dangerous? Again, Johnny Christmas. The thing I find most terrifying about the xenomorph is that it's unstoppable. It, uh, it's adaptable to almost any environment. It could live in like sub-zero cold. It could live in heat. It could live anywhere. And it's bioengineered for aggression. The thing just does not stop. It does not. You can't reason with it. It's, uh, it's an unstoppable killing machine. Now, Johnny said something there that really caught my ear. It's bioengineered. It was made, designed, enhanced for aggression and murderous capabilities. And this caught me off guard, the idea that the xenomorph is an artificially created life form. This was a big point of contention in the most recent film in the Alien franchise, 2017's Covenant. In it, we learned that David, the android played by Michael Fassbender, possibly the most handsome android ever, took the early forms of the xenomorph seen in Prometheus and engineered them, improved them into a more efficient, more ruthless killing machine. I never liked that idea. It always felt silly to me, almost like retconning what was supposed to be a pinnacle of evolution. But according to Johnny, the idea that the xenomorph was engineered is not in any way a new idea. Well. Uh, from the stuff that I've read, it seems like they always, uh, the early uh, writers of the story just kind of wanted this this crazy alien sort of thing. But I think when Giger came on, uh, Giger, 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 uh, that he really introduced like the biomechanical part of it. And I think that sort of uh, kick-started some ideas in their mind like, oh, you know what? I think this thing is engineered. And how uh, every time you have your scientist scene in any of the movies, and they sort of break down what this thing is that's attacking the crew. They always sort of allude to this thing isn't just a thing that just occurred in nature, like that there was a hand pushing it along. Regardless, the alien is terrifying. It's deadly and takes advantage of all your primal fears of being hunted, eaten. But what would happen if a xenomorph landed here on Earth tomorrow? Here's Johnny again to ensure that you don't get to sleep tonight. Uh, just a drone? Or are we talking... Uh, all right, let's, let's go with the drone. 
uh, with the premise that they could create a colony on their own, right? Uh, it will, uh, it hits New York City, Toronto, big city, you know, it, it just starts, right? Because it can't help itself. It's just going to start on pure aggression. It's going to find a hiding spot. And then it's going to start creating a nest. So it'll start using its resin to create a nest on the inside of that building. So if you were to walk in, you'd, you'd find some folks all kind of gored up and then like that weird resin that looks like the inside of a derelict ship. Uh, and with the uh, Gibson premise in time, that drone would then become a queen because there would be a, a huge number of hosts around, potential hosts, and no queen. So uh, according to the premise, that drone will become a queen, lay eggs, and then those eggs will become facehuggers and then create more drones as they attack hosts. Within a sh pretty short period of time, uh, the city would be overrun. Well, that's a pleasant thought. Within a few weeks, the biggest cities on Earth would be overrun. But the question remains, is it even possible? That's what we want to address here, right? So, we've discussed what makes the alien so terrifying. We've discussed how efficient it is at what it does. But is it even possible? I figured it'd be a good idea to get a legitimate scientist's take on this. So I brought in an actual scientist. Dan Riskin, former host of Daily Planet, who's studied parasites quite a bit. So obviously my first question would be, is alien possible? Oh, yes. Definitely. No. no, it definitely is. And as a biologist, if anything, it like it's more representative of what an alien interaction should be, as opposed to like this nice ET thing where we just all get along. Nature's a brutal place and the processes I mean the whole reason to study nature on Earth is to understand how nature with a capital N works. And so if there's any nature on other planets, it would presumably obey the same laws of natural selection and all these different things and protecting yourself. And parasitism is a huge, huge part of life on earth more than half of animals are parasites it's the way we live so the the idea that there would be a parasite from space that that's if you accept that there is life in space there's got to be parasites in space yep parasites in space talk about nightmare fuel but let's not cast aside the incredible structure that is the human body we are a walking time bomb of microscopic life forms our bodies are like arcs. They're ecosystems in their own right. Wouldn't our body, as evolved and sophisticated as it is, help us fight off an invader? Like, as different as they are from us, isn't there a chance that in an attempt to feed on us, to prey on us, our body could be just as deadly to the parasite as they are to us? Th that's a really good question. And what you can look at as an analog for this is natural systems where a, a parasite from somewhere else gets into a novel area, right? So some parasite from Europe comes into North America, and it's never been experienced by the animals in North America. The parasite's never been here, but the animals have also never faced the parasite. And in those circumstances, the parasite usually has a heyday, right? You think of smallpox as a disease. When that was brought over from Europe to North America, the people who lived in North America had no immune response and smallpox ripped 
us, to rip people to shreds, right? And if you look at this disease that's wiping out bats right now, white nose syndrome, it's exactly the same thing. The, the bats in Europe can get it and they can survive it, but the bats in North America that have never seen the disease before have no defenses against it. And time and time again, this is what happens with diseases. When they get into a group that's never seen it before, it is way more virulent. It kills way more of them. So if anything, assuming these xenomorph parasites are generalists that can deal with a range of body types, which seems like the way the story's told, um, it would be, the onus would be on us to figure out a way to deal with it. It would already have a whole bunch of tools at its disposal to deal with a new host, and we would not have the tools at our disposal to reject it. So you're telling me it's impossible. Our immune system and the way our bodies are made would have no defense. Zilch. Let's assume that the human body has these uh, evolutionary ways of fighting a parasite. Those cost something. You have to be able to make some kind of system in your body. It has to work properly. And the only way that that can evolve is if it's, there's some kind of natural selection that makes it evolve, right? And some, and if, especially if it's expensive, like I'm making a whole... Like venom, for example, right? If an animal makes a venom to protect itself, if you move it to a place where it never uses that venom, the venom is going to go away eventually. Just like vision goes away in fish that live in dark caves after many generations things that are expensive and hard to maintain just if they're not selected for they just go away so there's nothing if there are no xenomorphs in human existence there's nothing to give us there's no evolutionary pressure for us to evolve a defense against xenomorphs there's no way it's not until the xenomorphs start picking on us and then it's a question of whether we can evolve fast enough to have some kind of a so like a few thousand generations in the future maybe some of us have some kind of defense the thing that kicks me in the groin about xenomorphs is that there was a recent paper, you know, everybody always says beetles are the most common kind of animal, but uh, there's a recent paper that shows that parasitoid wasps, which do exactly what xenomorphs do, except they do it to caterpillars and flies and stuff, those are the most diverse group of animals on the planet. They're everywhere. So that alien scene of the thing bursting out of the chest is happening as we speak, millions of places all over the world every day. Okay, again, Mr. Riskin, not making it easy for me to sleep tonight. But one of the more interesting elements of the xenomorph is its ability to harvest DNA from its host, to evolve generation to generation. But are there examples of that type of behavior in nature itself? Yeah, viruses do that a lot. So you see a lot of times viruses will pick up DNA from hosts and carry them and, and it, it will spread uh, or viruses will take their own DNA and stick them in. But you know what? That whole DNA angle is showing an assumption about the aliens universe that I think a lot of people don't acknowledge. If you invent life on another planet, there are a zillion different ways to do it. And DNA is the way that it evolved on Earth. But if things in space have DNA, that tells us that we have a common ancestor with those things, that it's not an independent thing. Because DNA is like, it's not just a great way to make bodies, but it's got some some arbitrary decisions that are made in it. Like when the DNA sequence says GGG, it makes a certain amino acid. And if it's a GCC, it makes a different amino acid. And which amino acid it makes for those different sequences of DNA is the same in a butterfly as it is in a human. And that's one of the great evidences that we are related to those things is that we all have the same, it's called genetic code. We all have the same genetic code. So if they tell us that these alien xenomorphs are 
are taking DNA from their hosts in space, that tells us that those things in space share some kind of ancestry with us. So either they used to be on Earth and they went out into space or human life came from space or whatever. But these xenomorphs, they're not dealing with a brand new group of organisms when they get to the humans. They're already used to some branch of our family tree. That kind of threw me. I'm aware that DNA is but one way of creating life. There could be others. But I was still reeling about how quickly Dan told me we're essentially doomed as a species if we ever encountered something akin to the xenomorph. I meant to ask what other ways life could evolve, like what other building blocks there could be. So I emailed him afterwards, and his answer was, and I quote, something else? Question mark? There really is no way of knowing what other ways life could evolve. It is a guessing game, pure and simple. Now, if you're a scientist and you've got a counterpoint for that, I would love to hear from you. But before I let Dan off the hook, I needed to get his take on the scariest aspect of the xenomorph. And we agreed that it's that rudimentary, predatory intellect that it has. In Aliens, the xenomorph lays in wait as the Marines enter the colony. They wait until the Marines are deep within its tunnels, and then they attack. Both of us felt that this wasn't by chance, that it's an ambush strategy. Even though the xenomorph may not be able to sit down and fill out tax forms, there is a certain level of intelligence that makes it a very dangerous creature. And again, this type of behavior happens in nature all the time. Just listen to Dan's roundabout example. Ants. They move as this giant carpet through the forest. And as they move, they eat all the insects they can find. And so all these insects get kicked up out of the undergrowth and fly up into the air. And so there are these birds that follow ant swarms because they know they'll get a bunch of insects. Because just wherever the ant swarm goes, there's just insects jumping into the air. So they're, they're called ant birds. So anyway, I'm out with my friend and we're looking at these birds. I'm like, where are these birds coming from? What kind of birds are those? And then I see this carpet of ants just completely covering everything. And then I look over at my friend and that carpet of ants is moving up his legs like i'm standing on the edge of it but it is going up his pants and he just flipped his lid because the thing that ants do which is kind of xenomorph like is that they don't bite you right away they just all move into position and then one of them bites you and it releases a smell and then everybody bites you it's like they're a team right so that ability of of animals to move as a collective and to do something like that because if they bit all the way along you'd sweep them all off when they got to your ankle but they wait until they're all over you and then they go and they all go it's terrible okay so now we all know that if we encounter aliens odds are they will be parasites and it will not end well for us i hope you've enjoyed this uplifting program in the meantime, I'm going to go watch some Star Trek because I'm hoping that the aliens we meet will be more like space elves and less like Armageddon. But before I go, I'll leave you with an edition of Issue Zero Recommends. Now, since we've been talking about space and the nature of reality, I am going to recommend Cosmos, the original Carl Sagan version. It's out there on the internet if you want to watch it, but I would encourage you to read the book. It's just a fascinating examination of the way all things are interconnected. It's an oddly comforting, while at the same time, mind-altering book. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. 
While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen to us at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Fearless underscore Fred, on Facebook and on Instagram. You can also email me at IssueZero at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Uh, And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnson. See you next time with more Issue Zero.